Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. My name is John Whitaker, and the goal of the Listener's Commentary is to provide down-to-earth, clear, in-depth Bible teaching straight through the books of the New Testament. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. In context, here's where we're at in the story of Jesus. In chapter 2, Mark began to highlight Jesus' interactions with some of the key religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. He highlighted those interactions through the healing of the lame man that was lowered through the roof, or through the eating with tax collectors and sinners, and then the interchange that followed from that, or the story of Jesus not fasting and them wondering why. The interchanges with the Pharisees continue in this section, and the tension continues to mount. And by the end of this scene, the Pharisees already want to get rid of Jesus. The two interactions in this scene have to do with Sabbath customs. The first takes place outside in a grain field on the Sabbath day. Here's the way it unfolds. Verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of the grain. And so here we are on a Sabbath, sometime on a Saturday, maybe a Friday evening, more likely on a Saturday. They're walking through some grain fields somewhere outside of town on the Sabbath. Uh, The grain is apparently near maturity since the disciples can pick it and eat it, which means this is spring or early summer. Uh, the, The grain is almost ready for harvest. And the disciples, as they walk through, pick off some of the heads of grain and eat it. And that actually is not a problem. This was actually allowed by Jewish law, by the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25 says this, When you enter a neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand, but you're not to use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So you can pluck off some, you know, an occasional head here, take a little snack from your neighbor's grain. That was allowed by law. So what we're going to see is the Pharisees aren't upset that the disciples are picking their neighbor's grain. The Pharisees are going to be upset that they're picking their neighbor's grain on the Sabbath. That's the issue, that this is the Sabbath day. And if you're not familiar with the Sabbath, it's one of the Ten Commandments. The commandment specifically is to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. The way you're to keep the Sabbath holy and to honor it is by not doing any work. It's tied to the seventh day of creation where God rested from all his work. It's tied to God delivering uh, the, the Israelites from Egypt and giving them rest from their slavery. And so in the Old Testament law, the Sabbath is tied to that, remembering those things, honoring those things as a way of resting and honoring God. Well, among the Jews by of Jesus' day, all sorts of customs had been developed about what well, what constituted work on the Sabbath. Uh, laws about how far you could walk and how far you couldn't. Laws about what constituted uh, reaping and what didn't. And that's what's at issue here. In fact, the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish traditions, forbids 39 specific acts on the Sabbath. And one of the specific acts that were forbidden was reaping. Well, As far as the Pharisees are concerned, picking your neighbor's grain on the Sabbath, well, that constitutes reaping. That's forbidden. So look at verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? In other words, why are they breaking the custom? There's nothing in the Old Testament law 
itself that says you can't do this. In fact, we just read the Old Testament law that says you can pick your neighbor's grain as you walk through their fields. The question is the Sabbath. And according to their traditions, this was uh, tantamount to reaping. Reaping was forbidden on the Sabbath. Thus, it breaks the customs of the law on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus responds to this accusatory question with a story from the Old Testament. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? That line is really important. Uh, here we have an issue of hunger and need. Well, what did they do? Verse 26, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except for the priest, and he gave it to those who were with him. Notice how Jesus begins this illustration from the Old Testament. He begins by saying, have you never read? Jesus actually says this sort of things a lot in his interactions with the Pharisees. And remember, that's important. He's talking to the Pharisees. Like, they're the religious leaders. They loved the law. They loved the text of Scripture. They studied it. They taught it. And so when Jesus says, have you never read? That's a little bit of a jab. Like, you should know these things. And haven't you ever thought through the implications of these things? And so... Jesus is inviting them to think through the implications of this story. And this is a story that you can find in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Here's kind of the story in a nutshell. David, who is at this time when this incident happens, he's the king in waiting. And his men, his companions are on the run from King Saul and his men. So David has already been anointed king. He's the king in waiting, but Saul is still the existing king and he's trying to do away with David. So David and his men are fleeing from Saul and his men. And as they're fleeing, they come to the tabernacle. That's what's meant by the house of God in verse 26. It's the tabernacle, which at the time this occurred was located at the town of Nob. And when David and his men showed up there, he asks the high priest for food. And the high priest gave David and his men the bread of the presence. That's the consecrated bread that's mentioned here in Jesus' summary. But the bread of the presence was 12 loaves of bread that were baked and brought into the tabernacle each Sabbath and set before the Lord. That was the whole purpose of it. It was just sort of like this uh, custom of bringing this bread of the... the uh, honored the presence of God each Sabbath. And when fresh loaves were brought in on the Sabbath, the old loaves from the previous Sabbath then would be free for the priests to eat. So that's the bread we're talking about in this story. So technically, David, by eating this bread, broke the law because that bread was only lawful for the priests to eat. But there's a higher principle at work in the case of David. What's that principle? Well, it's, the, it's human need. David was in need. His companions became hungry. And so human need is the higher principle than this bread being reserved for the priests. Um, and so the priest, in view of this higher need, shared his bread with David. Well, Jesus takes this story and applies the principle to the Sabbath and says that the same sort of principle governs the Sabbath. Look at verse 27. He says, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was designed 
to meet human need for the good of people and not the other way around. It wasn't as if people were created so they could keep the Sabbath. It was that the Sabbath was instituted for the benefit of man. Man needs the Sabbath. They need rest. And so it was intended to meet a real human need. And when you get too niggly and all technical about all the laws and the customs related to the Sabbath, you end up harming people rather than fulfilling the purpose of it, which is to care for people, which uh, then therefore you violate the Sabbath in a far deeper sort of way. That's the point Jesus is making from the story, just as there was a higher principle that made it acceptable for the priest to share his bread with David and his men, So too with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed to meet that same principle, the principle of human need. Then Jesus concludes this little interchange by a statement about himself. He says this in verse 28. He says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So as the Son of Man, the Son of Man is the way Jesus refers to himself. It means human being, but the way Jesus uses uses it as a messianic title, it's echoing Daniel chapter 7, right? And we've talked about that with that exalted son of man figure who sits on the throne of God and thus has authority over God's kingdom. And so the son of man is a, is a position, a kingly position, an authoritative position. So he's Lord. And Jesus says he's Lord even of the Sabbath. And so he himself, as the son of man, as the ultimate human being, as the full image of God, And thus, the divinely appointed king, the king, in fact, who's supposed to be the fulfillment of David's dynasty, right? We're talking with a story from David, the son of man, Jesus, is the very fulfillment of that dynasty. He can make rulings about the Sabbath. He has the authority over the best way to keep it. That's the point Jesus is making. And so, it's acceptable, um, both by scripture and by the authority of the son of man, for his uh, disciples to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. That's the first interchange. Now we get the second conflict, the second Sabbath interchange and second Sabbath conflict in the next little snapshot in this scene. This one happens in a synagogue. So Mark chapter three, verses one through six says this, he entered a synagogue again. So another Sabbath, presumably at another time in a synagogue. And there's a man there whose hand was withered. So here we are on a new Sabbath than the preceding snapshot at synagogue service. And there's a man in the service who has a bad hand. Probably picture like a hand that's kind of twisted and curled up and not really usable, right? That's the issue with this guy's hand. And verse 2, they were watching him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The they there refers to the Pharisees, both from the preceding and the flow of the story as Mark has told it, but also chapter 3, verse 6 makes it clear. We're talking about the Pharisees. And so we've got Pharisees watching him closely. Notice what they're watching him closely to see if he does. Heal on the Sabbath. In other words, note the irony. They know he has the power to heal. They don't deny that. They're actually watching him closely because he has the power to heal. And they're hoping that he will heal because then they think if he heals on the Sabbath, we've got him because he'll be breaking another Sabbath custom. I just find that so ironic that they know he has healing power, even though they're opposed to him. Um, But they want to use that against him because they're hoping he'll violate their customs. Ironic to me. 
Um, since Jesus has a reputation for going against their customs on, on the Sabbath, here they are keeping a close eye on him, hoping that he heals. I would think that the fact that he has the power to heal would actually make them pause and think about who he is. But the human heart is far harder than that, far more resistant to change than that. And that's the issue. So look what happens here in verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. So Jesus initiates the conflict. He doesn't hide from it. He doesn't you know, heal this man on the sly. He doesn't do this after service, kind of out back when no one's looking. He actually, in the middle of service, calls the man with the bad hand forward. Get up, come forward. So he brings the man up front in front of everybody because Jesus wants to challenge their Sabbath customs. Verse 4, and Jesus said to them, so he says to the whole crowd, but particularly to the Pharisees who are challenging him and questioning him, who have this issue with him, uh, who are watching him closely, Jesus said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? Note the close connection to the preceding snapshot where Sabbath was made for man. It was, in other words, for man's good. And so here Jesus is asking a question that has to do with that. Is the Sabbath for, for human well-being or are we, do we just exist to keep all the customs of the Sabbath? What's the Sabbath actually for? That's what his question is getting at. But the way Jesus asks it puts his opponents in a very difficult spot. How do you answer this question? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? Well, of course, it's not. you shouldn't do harm on any day, yet alone on the Sabbath. But to do good? Well, save a life or kill? Well, no, we shouldn't kill, but save, right? He asked this question in such a way that there's no good way for them to answer the question. Um, I always admire that about Jesus and how, uh, how good he was at asking questions that backed people into a corner. Not illegitimately, but forcing them to think through the implications of their beliefs and what God really wanted. So he asked this question, no good way for them to answer. And so they don't answer. They kept silent there in verse 4. And thus, with one question, Jesus had put them in their place. And so, verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Notice that Jesus grieved at the hardness of their heart. That when he sees how hard their heart is, they know he has the power to heal. And yet he's watching them closely and they, they are unwilling to acknowledge that maybe, just maybe, they're wrong. Their heart is so hard and it grieves Jesus and it stirs him to anger. He's upset by it. He's like, really? Um, their, their heart is so hard they don't care about the well-being of this man with a bad hand. Like Jesus can make him whole and all they care about is, see, you violated our tradition. Uh, their heart is so hard that they've made their traditions more important than people. Um, their hardness of heart shows up in them trying to trap Jesus rather than consider that his miracles may actually be pointing to something significant about who he is. Uh, their hardness uh, of heart shows up in their willingness to consider murder, implied in the way Jesus asked the question to save a life or to kill. Because by the time we get to the end of the story, they're already contemplating killing Jesus. 
all throughout the biblical story, it was Israel's hardness of heart that led them away from God. And sadly, the same is true here in this story with this man and with the Pharisees. Their heart is so hard that they're unwilling to take an honest, hard look at Jesus and who he might be and maybe consider that some of their traditions and customs might just be wrong. And so Jesus heals this man. The man stretches out his hand and his hand is instantly restored. How do the Pharisees respond? We'll look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might put him to death. And so here they are already contemplating, notice immediately on the Sabbath, contemplating murder and how they could get rid of him. We know who the Pharisees are. Who are the Herodians that they're conspiring with? Well, the Herodians were pro-Roman aristocrats. They supported the Herods because the Herods uh, worked in league with the Romans, and that's why they're called the Herodians. And they did that because uh, they the Romans kept them in power. And so they're wealthy noblemen who have power and status because of their wealth, right? And the Romans are the ones that keep them in power. So that's this party. This party is um, the Herodians, pro-Roman aristocrats. The fact that the Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting together is fascinating because the Pharisees are anti-Roman purists. They, They sought to bring God's kingdom, God's plan to fulfillment through holiness and through purity. And they, they did not, they, I mean, they may have kind of compromised in places to work with the Romans, but they did not really want to join with the Romans. They weren't pro-Roman in any sort of way. And then you have the Herodians who were loyal to Rome because the Romans kept them in power. But because they both don't like Jesus, because Jesus is a threat to both their positions and their power, they now join forces together, even though they typically would not have worked together, they join forces together in an effort to eliminate Jesus. Well, before we leave this section, just uh, a couple reflections. Uh, Once again, here we see Jesus' authority and we see his courage. He doesn't back down. He actually calls them out. He calls this man forward and he challenges their traditions. And he does so not just merely because Jesus is an iconoclast who is anti-tradition, right? He does so specifically because he's pro people. We need to see that. It's not just that Jesus doesn't like old, likes only new things, is anti-tradition. No, Jesus pro-people. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What's better to do on the Sabbath? To do good for people or to harm people? Jesus is pro-people. We also see here just how dangerous self-deception is. These guys know that Jesus has the authority and the power to perform miracles. And yet, uh, they are so blinded by their current beliefs and traditions that they are unwilling to consider that they might be wrong. And they're unwilling to consider who Jesus just might be. Their hearts are that hard, that callous. And so they choose to plot Jesus' murder than to consider the possibility of a different perspective. That's how dangerous self-deception is, and we're all liable to it. Uh, one, one devotional writer of a generation or two ago was famous for saying, of all forms of deception, self-deception is the worst. Because of all deceived persons, the self-deceived is the least likely to discover the fraud. And the reason for that is because the self-deceived 
has a has uh, you know he's defending him his himself his own position if i'm deceived by somebody else then i'm like oh wait a second right but when i have a vested interest in it when i'm personally attached to this view man it's harder for me to get outside of myself and consider a different position and so here we have religious leaders now working together with pro-roman aristocrats in an effort to eliminate jesus because of their own self-deception and we all need to watch out for our own tendency toward self-deception. Hey, it's John. Before we leave this recording, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to each and every one of you who makes this ministry possible by your generous donations. Thanks a ton for that, because the listener's commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching effort. So thank you for your support. If you are not yet a supporter and want to join the team, there is a link down in the notes below, or you can just swing on over to listenerscommentary.com and click the Give uh, tab up in the header. Thank you so much for your support.